Welcome to week seven-ish of Ordinary. C.S. Lewis writing about something else once thought, what would aliens think about if they came to Earth and saw us? Like, what would they think they were like if they had no other experience with humans? And I, I think one of the things that they would think is that these creatures that they were investigating are terrified by virtually nothing so much as the idea of their life being ordinary. There's, um, there was a news story in a prestigious journal called The Onion <laughs> that goes, goes like this. For those who don't know, The Onion is a satirical um, thing. Camden, Massachusetts. Longtime acquaintances confirmed to reporters this week that local man Michael Husmer, an unambitious 29-year-old loser, who leads an enjoyable and fulfilling life, still lives in his hometown and has no desire even to leave. Claiming that the aimless slouch has never resided more than two hours from his parents and still hangs out with friends from high school, sources close to Husmer reported that the man who has meaningful, lasting personal relationships and healthy work-life balance is an unmotivated washout who is perfectly comfortable being a nobody for the rest of his life. I've known Mike my whole life, and he's a good guy. But it's pretty pathetic that he's still living on the same street he grew up on and experiencing a deep sense of personal satisfaction about it, childhood friend David Gorman said of the unaspiring, completely gratified do-nothing. As soon as Mike graduated from college, he moved back home and started working at a local insurance firm. Now he's nearly 30 years old, living in the exact same town he was born in, working at the same small-time job, and is extremely contented in all aspects of his home and professional life. It's really sad. Additionally, pointing out, pointing to the intimate, enduring connections he's developed with his wife, parents, siblings, and neighbors, sources reported that Husmer's life is, quote, pretty humiliating on multiple levels. Husmer's ordinary life is debt-free, and he is perfectly content to stay put while many of his high school friends go off to the bright lights in the big city. He doesn't care about impressing total strangers, even, every day as he climbs up the corporate ladder. When he can invest in the lives of those closest to him, he doesn't have a thousand friends on Facebook just a close family circle of friends in town. I'm just glad I got out of there and didn't end up like Mike, said Husmer's cousin Amari Martin, 33, an attorney at a large law firm and who hasn't seen Husmer, who was his closest childhood playmate for nearly six years. The last thing I'd ever want is to have a loving family nearby, feel a sense of pleasure while reflecting on my life, and be the big failure that everyone runs into when they visit home once a year for the holidays. A couple pages later, um, Horton's talking about a young woman who grew up in a large evangelical church in Texas where they basically spent her time, in her 19-year-old words, reaching basically respectable Texas Republicans for Jesus. And so she left and went to Africa and worked for orphans for a little while before she finished college. And she wrote this about her return. I was nearly 22 years old and had just returned to my college town from a part of Africa that had missed the last three centuries. As I walked to church in my weathered, worn-in Chacos, I bumped into our new associate pastor and introduced myself. He smiled warmly and said, Oh, you, I've heard about you. You're that radical who wants to give your life away for Jesus. It was meant as a compliment, and I took it as one. But it also felt like a lot of pressure because, in a new way, I was torturously uncertain about what being a radical and living for Jesus was supposed to mean for me. Here I was, back in America, 
needing a job and health insurance, toying with the idea of dating this law student intellectual who wasn't really all that radical, and unsure about how to be faithful to Jesus in an ordinary life. I'm not sure I even knew that it was possible. I entered into college restless with questions about my— about with questions and spent my 20s reading Marx and St. Francis and being discipled by the works of Rich Mullins, Ron Sider, and Tony Campolo, and learning about the new monasticism, though it wasn't even called that yet. I even invited everybody at our big college evangelical gathering to join me in protesting the School of the Americas. But after spending time in various radical Christian communities, I began to wonder if ordinary life was even possible. Now, I'm a 30-something with two kids living a more or less ordinary life. And what I'm slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot scarier and a lot harder than being in a war-torn African village. What I need courage for is the ordinary, er, the ordinary, the daily everydayness of life. Caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling to me than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy Christian communities requires less of me than being kind to my husband on an average Wednesday morning, or even calling my mother back when I don't feel like it. Ron Dreher is commenting on this. He says, Everydayness is my problem. It's easy to think about what you would do in wartime, or if a hurricane blows through, or if you spend a month in Paris, or if your guy wins the election, or if you won the lottery, or bought that thing you really wanted. It's a lot more difficult to figure out how you're going to get through today without despair. I know, how, I know just how it feels. Even more than I'm afraid of failure, I'm terrified by boredom. So, in, in a sense, you can—one of the things that you can recognize is that the, what we might call the ordinary, the things that actually make up the everydayness of our life, is the fault line. It's the, it's the front line where the, two battle, where the two armies are very engaged in the whole battle of godliness and worldliness. It is, it is the line of substance. Because it is in how you look at what makes up our lives and your attitude about what makes up your life that fundamentally decide whether or not you'll be captured by the philosophy of worldliness— and the God-mammon, or by Jesus and his claim that if you seek him in his kingdom, that everything else will be added to you, right? And so, like, the, the problem is, is as human beings, we're born into a world, co- into connections. So there's no such thing as a human being that exists without connections. When the, the minute you're born, you have parents, usually. And if you don't, you have somebody who keeps you alive, because no baby keeps itself alive, And the minute you're kept alive in your complete imbecility and inability to do anything for yourself, you immediately incur the debt of love. You're entwined in roles. You're a child. You're a dependent. You're these things. And then as you move through your life, you become these other things. And every time you take on a role, you take on responsibilities, right? Even as a child. Child, children, obey your parents and respect them. That's your, it's your, your responsibility as a child because your role is that you're a child. And as we go through life, we take on new roles, and with every new role, there's new responsibilities. And roles are very difficult because they're, they're binding. Like you're in that thing, which means you're in that thing and you're not something else. So it's terrifying if you want to be able to do anything you want to do at any moment. If you feel like you only live once, like, man, I need to be free to do anything. Having any kind of role is a little bit terrifying. 
right? Because you know that with roles come responsibilities. And if you only live once, you have to live by the philosophy of, I want what I want. Because you have to be able to do what you want, because you have to be free enough to go grasp that thing because you only live once. And if you have to be able to say, I want what I want, because you only live once, it means that you have to be consumed all the time with what you're missing out on. So in your heart resides this fear of missing out. Because you fear of missing, you're afraid of missing out on that, which if you saw it, you would want what you wanted, and it would be that thing, and you have to be ready to do it because you only live once. Right? Which leads to an idolatry of absolute freedom from any roles or responsibilities. Because you have to be able to go after whatever you want in all of its novelty or exoticness or immediacy or leisure or whatever. And, and what we're terrified of is, is that the actual fact of what it means to be a creature in a world made by a creator, made for a certain thing, bearing the image of God, is that you're born into roles— and those roles rightly have responsibilities. And those responsibilities happen in repetition over and over and over again. They're not different tomorrow, most of them. They're almost always the same. And what that means is, is that for your life to have meaning, and for you to, to live in that meaning happily, rather in despair or boredom or desperation, is you have to find these rhythms where the God-implanted love of change and the God-implanted desire for everything to stay the same orbit around each other in perfect symmetry. Have you ever noticed that? That, like, inside you is this desire that, for things to change, and yet inside you there's this desire for things to stay the same? Right? You wish you, you, wish every, you wish you could go off and conquer the world and then go back home and everything would be exactly the same as you left it, safe and secure. Right? And, and uh, Lewis says about this in the Screwtape Letters, he says, he says, God made us like this because we have to go out and do things we're supposed to take dominion, yet at the same time, things were going to be the same, and eternity will have this, like, beautiful repetition and rhythm to it, right? And so as creatures, we have to learn to be the kind of creature that loves change and loves how things stay the same. And so he says, so there's, these, like, for example, the seasons. Like, God help me, I'm going to love the first month of winter again. I mean, I'm going to hate it by February, but when that first snowfall comes, I'm going to love it. And this last weekend, this like fall feeling, rake the leaves, watch some football, watch Maryland die, like all of that, like it just, I, we, were, we were drying apples in my house that we grew on our tree. Our kids were like messing with the leaves. It just felt like fall, and it was so gratifying just to live in that day with the, the temperature and the breeze and the laughter and the raking and all of that. And if I did it for a month, I'd be really tired of it. If I did it for about three days, I'd be tired of it, right? And yet next year, I'll love it again. And you see, God has created us to be these creatures of rhythm, embodying the ordinary and delighting in it as it changes and stays the same. Right? In a sense, you could personify the two calls like this. In the beginning of the book of Proverbs, right, Lady Folly calls out and calls people to her, and then Lady Wisdom stands up and calls people to her. And so similarly, you could say something like this. If Lady Worldliness was to stand up and call you to this side of that, she'd say something like this. Living typical, uninteresting, repetitive, stuck, traditional lives without risk or passion is boring, miserable, and a waste. 
It'll leave you resentful, weary, and angry. It's better to try to live an extraordinary life. Don't settle down. See the world. Don't settle for some ordinary lover. Find your soulmate. Don't settle for a job you don't love. Find work that is almost play and that changes the world. Don't get stuck in doing the same thing every day. See what's new in the world. To be happy means to be ready to change things, to risk, to be bold. Do you feel like you've heard that call in our culture? Because I do. Lady substance might sound something like this. Mammon is all promise and no substance. Embracing normal isn't selling out. It's embracing the wholesome identity of a creature in a world of rhythm and repetition. Travel some, but do it mainly to open your eyes to the infinite discoveries within your home. Work is toil, but it can be good and productive toil. There are no soulmates, but you can pour out your heart and soul for your ordinary mate. You don't need to see what's new in the world nearly as much as what is divinely lovely in it. And what is good is good everywhere, and it isn't new. Our happiness is found in our bonds, in our duties, and how we accept and perform them. And with what risk and boldness we trust the wholesomeness of how God related us to his own creation. And every person, every day, makes a decision as to which of those voices to listen to in the motivational structures of their own hearts. And it will, that decision is the decision that will define you every single day. I've said to people before that um, if I could only have one book to preach in the universities of the world the rest of my life, if I was going to be in universities and I was going to preach from the Bible, the book I would choose every time is the book of Ecclesiastes. Because the book of Ecclesiastes lays this out in a way that isn't immediately apparent, but is extraordinarily clear once you see it. And essentially what this book argues with the whole of the Bible, where some of it's presumed everywhere, it's taught in certain places, but the book of Ecclesiastes is the most complete teaching of it. And that is, is that God uses the ordinary to frustrate worldliness and to forge substance or godliness. God uses the ordinary to frustrate worldliness and to forge substance or godliness. That is, God has created into the nature of the creation that you're a part of, that if you listen to the voice of lady worldliness and you try to not embrace the rhythms of the, the functionality of the realities of the roles and rhythms and repetitions of our lives, you will, you will grow increasingly horrifically unhappy. And that that is an act of love, that God has done that. And that if you do understand it and embrace what God has done in those things, it will open in you an ability to receive everything with fascination and thankfulness in such a way as that you'll be happy in everything. And it is, it is a difference of attitude, but that attitude, in order to be stable, has to be rooted in a kind of faith about what you believe is true. And so, the way— Solomon lays this out in Ecclesiastes. Is he, he's, um, a, lot of, a, a number of Bible commentators look at the book of Ecclesiastes and they say, this is probably where we get this book. That Solomon was close to God when he was first king. 
He married about 700 women, most of whom did not believe in the God of the scriptures, and he lost his way. Every, every, all the narrative scripture says he lost his way. And then Ecclesiastes comes kind of right at the end of his life. And so people often think that it is this depressing lost his way, but yet still wise Solomon that wrote Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is an artifact of somebody who kind of lost their faith. And it's, it's kind of like what you shouldn't believe about the world. Because it's so depressing, right? That's not, that's not right. What these commentators say is, is that what happened is somewhere there in the older years of his life, he realized the futility of everything that he was living. And he came back to God. And yet he was living in a court that he had created in his wayward years. He had brought people around him that were kind of as cynical and as wayward and as pragmatic as he was. The upper echelon, the sophisticated people. And so he writes something for them now that he's come back. These sophisticated, worldly, educated, wealthy people in his court, that it's his fault are all around him, and now he teaches them. He teaches them that what he has led them into is futility. And that there is something more, and it's something that he knew years ago, and that he had, re- he had refound again. And he said, listen, this life that we've been living together, God has intended to make us unhappy. And so the, the book starts out with him saying, it's usually translated in English, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Um, the Hebrew word that word is translated from is a word that means vaporousness. Right? Which essentially what that means is, is that it's insubstantial and momentary. So you could say meaningless. And that's the point that he's getting to. But it's important to recognize why Solomon is saying it's meaningless. He's saying everything in the world is meaningless, not because you can't find some relative meaning in it, right? But because what he's saying is he's saying ultimately these things in the world are insubstantial, they don't last, and they're momentary. Right? Sorry, don't last was, to go, was supposed to go to the momentary. So he says, so this is what I did with my life. I applied myself to everything in the world to see if we could figure out what in the world was worthwhile. What in the world wasn't vapor? It was, is there anything in the world that is substantial rather than insubstantial and lasting rather than momentary? Is there anything? Is there anything we can put our—we can anchor ourselves in that's ultimately meaningful, that's not vapor? And he said, so I dove into everything— But when I dove into it, the whole time, he says, my wisdom was with me. And what that seems to mean is something like, because he says, even when he practiced folly, wisdom was there with him. What does that mean? I did stuff stupid really intelligently, right? What it it seems to mean is, is that even when he did things that he knew was foolish, to see what was in it, he was being honest with himself the whole time. You see, in order for you to be happy— for us, for human beings to be happy in foolishness, we have to believe certain attending lies that morally and intellectually free us to be dumb. Do you understand? And so this is why people who don't believe like you, you wonder how they can possibly believe that way and act that way. You're like, how do you not see? How do you not see? How do you not see? And it's because lifestyles have mental structures that have to go along with them in order for you to live those lifestyles. And what Solomon is saying is that even when I did the stupidest, most foolish things I could think of, I didn't buy in to the thoughts. I I like still looked at it from wisdom because I was testing it. I wasn't just doing it, right? 
And he, he says, the point was, see if we could find anything worthwhile under the sun. And he said, so I tested. And notice that he tested wisdom before he tested pleasure. If you read the order in the book, he doesn't just dive into booze and women. He starts with education. He starts with learning everything you could possibly learn. He learns by getting four PhDs first. And he said, what I found is with the increase of knowledge, there was the increase of grief. Because what you find out when you get really educated is that almost none of the enduring problems of humanity have solutions. That's what you find out. <laughs> there's all these, there's all these countervailing problems leaning on each other. It's like a game of pickup sticks where there's no stick to pick up without moving it. I don't know if you ever played that game as a kid and there's like no easy stick. And there's like literally no stick you can move where the other ones don't move. And you're just kind of— what's another word for screwed? You're kind of stuck, right? Like you can't— do anything, right? And when, as you learn more about, like, social problems and why people do stuff they do, all that kind of stuff, what you realize is the only solution for it is virtue. Like, people have to become the sort of person that can walk into the world and be themselves, know who they are, which requires strength. And apart from that, there's no way to fix stuff. There's ways to make things less bad. There's a way to help people so that their choices and things that happen to them or ways that they've been oppressed aren't as bad as they could be. But the more you know, it doesn't actually make you happier because you don't actually get what you wanted out of it and answer. Because there isn't one. And so he turns to booze and women, which was fun, but isn't lasting. And so he builds things nobody ever built before. Right? And he tries to be the most original person that's ever lived, and he gets wealth, and he has all these experiences, and he has a reputation, and he, and he gets to the end of it, he says, he reports on where he was in his terms of his soul, and he said he did all that stuff, and he said, here's the result of it. Emotionally, I felt weary. I felt emotionally crushed. I felt like everything was futile. I felt like I was, I was just in complete gloom and darkness. Which he was like, and so I tried to cheer myself with booze, right? And he said, I, I was full of—for all my achievements, I was full of dissatisfaction. My life was full of this anxious striving. I felt depressed. And he said, and then, and then my heart was filled with hatred. Right? Now think about this for a second. Think about the last six weeks if you've been here. Does that remind you of anything? S Solomon's list of what, ha of what happened in his heart when he tested— Everything in creation in relationship to the ordinary and what it means to be a created creature in God's creation and what happens if you focus just on the creation and its meaning and substantialness and not on the creator and you try to find out what's lasting in it and what that— and then he said, this is what it does to you on the inside. And it turns out a thousand years later, that's exactly what Jesus said would happen to you on the inside if you worship the god Mammon or— Listen to the voice of worldliness. They're exactly the same because the inability to accept the ordinary is worldliness. Being able to accept the ordinary and revel in the fascination and acceptance of it, its rhythms, knowing that that's what you were created for and it's good, is the mo one of the most fundamental realizations of faith that allows you to pursue godliness, and that frees you from the chokehold of worldliness. So whether you do it Solomon's way, or whether you listen to Jesus, it's the exact same thing.
right? And he says, so where he ended up after he did all this stuff, he says, so I hated life because the work that's done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it's meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I'd toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. And the person who came after him, of course, was Rehoboam, and he was a fool and destroyed most of what Solomon had done, Right? This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor and son. You see where he ended up? He ended up hating life and everything he'd worked for. And what I'm telling you is, the fact that the world is this way and your heart is that way is a gift of God. It's a gift. You see, he gets to the end of chapter 2 and he's talking about all these things he tried. And the unsatisfying, he, and he, he's like, so, so here's the answer, Right? The unsatisfying answer, because remember who he's speaking to. And so his first answer is like, well, here's the answer, and you're not going to like it. And it's not going to answer your question, really. He said, a man can do nothing better, so this is the best you can do. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. You see what he's saying? Before he, he, was, he was arguing that there was a problem with meaning and with pleasure. Do you see what he says here? To the, to the man who pleases God, God just gives the things. All the things we've been trying to wrestle out of creation, he says, to the person who just believes God, trusts God, and pleases God. These things that you simply cannot get by trying to wrestle them out of creation, God just gives them to you. He just gives them. He just gives you knowledge, all that education. He said, oh, I couldn't find the thing, the, the, the realizations that I was looking for, the answer actually just was given when I understood what I was and what life really was, and I turned to God and I tried to please God. God just gives knowledge and happiness, both meaning and pleasure. Right? He, he says this, and so he, he had already actually hinted at the answer a couple verses earlier. He said, My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward of all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. You see what he's saying? He, he actually already knew the answer. You see, when he was doing the stuff, when he was learning the education, when he was drinking the wine, and kissing the woman, and building the building, and doing the stuff, he enjoyed it. It was, it, it seemed perfectly world worthwhile in and of itself as its own thing, and yet when he surveyed it, when he went from the position of the creature, and he tried to get up and kind of look at it as the creator and be like, what does it all mean? Is it, is it what I wanted to be? Will it endure, right? The answer was, no, it's stupid. Like, everything, your education's going to go out of date. The, that woman you're into is going to grow older. The wine is going to go through your system, and you're going to have a hangover, and you're not going to be drunk later. Like, none of it endures, and none of it has ultimate meaning, and none of it is anchored the way you want it to be. None of it. And so he just was like, ugh. And then only later he realized that when he did the work itself, he was happy. And when he surveyed the achievement, he was depressed. You see, the promotion you want isn't going to make you happy. I mean, not only does the Bible say this from 3,000 years ago, all, all, this, all the research that's come out in the last 20 years about, about what makes people happy all says that it, you won't make you happy. P 
people aren't, people aren't happy about it. People aren't even happy about raises. You know when people are happy about raises? When they're told they're going to get it before they get the money, they're happy about it for about a week. By the time the money's actually in their paycheck, they're not happy about it anymore. And a month later, they're not happy about it anymore because they've already changed their lifestyle and they're already wishing they had more. Right? Because, they, because the thought of the thing makes them happy, but the thing itself doesn't. Because of our attitude about it. Because the achievements don't make us happy. Only the work does. Listen, you may, listen your kids aren't going to turn out the way you want them to. My kids aren't going to turn out the way I want them to. None of them are. The, the picture, if you have a picture of the future of your children, you will be disappointed. If you have a picture about the future of your marriage, you'll probably be disappointed. If you have a picture about the future of your health, you'll probably be disappointed. If you have a picture about the future of your career, you're probably going to be disappointed. And even if you're not disappointed, it's going to be very different than your picture, probably. Wholesome success can usually not be completely planned upon. And there's a lot of people that do their duty with utmost faithfulness, and the things that they wish happened don't happen. But, but the work was worthwhile. And if you believe the work is worthwhile, then you can do almost anything. Right? And so you see, the crux of the issue was when Solomon looked at what he saw, he saw there was no lasting pleasure, there was no permanent accomplishment, and therefore in what he looked at, there was no ultimate meaning of significance and knowledge. And, and here's what he says, and this is, this is one of the most important passages in the Bible, I think, for modern Americans. Because Solomon then says, after he says that bit, the unsatisfying answer, he says, okay, now here's what you need to understand. All this misery, all this misery, it's on purpose. God does it on purpose. And you're going to either hate him for it, or you're going to realize it's one of the greatest gifts he ever wove into the fabric of creation. He says, this is, I have seen the burden God has laid on men. At least twice in Ecclesiastes, he, call, Ecclesiastes, he calls this the burden God lays on men. In chapter 1 and in this chapter. He says, I've seen the burden. And so here's the burden. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That's the burden. That, that connection of eternity and temporality, everlasting change, woven and programmed into the inner heart of the human being, which is an explosion waiting to happen. It is an insoluble equation, right? And he says, I know that there's nothing better for a man to be happy than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. See, you see this thing? If you, tr you trust in God, and, and you don't see anything that will last forever, but you, what you know is if God does something, it will last forever. Right? And the, and the only everlasting thing about you is the thing that is connected to God, and you don't know much about that. You, all you know is, is that it's with God. Right? And then he says, nothing can be added and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. You see, what's happened is God has put an insoluble equation in relationship to being and happiness in the heart of human beings— so that worldliness, which is our main false god, will create misery in our hearts. Okay, now this isn't, this isn't a philosophical proof. This is a psychological reality that everyone experiences. Do you understand? So that he puts, he puts a longing for beauty in us, 
That is, we see everything as beautiful in its time. We look, at, we look at the things, especially when we're young, and we see beauty, right? And we say, I want it to last. I want to be part of that beauty. And then you see the leaves changing, and you see the crow's feet appearing, and you see you're not getting as far along as you want to be before a certain age, and you, you see that, like, the beauty in the creation is fading right in front of your eyes, at least in your generation, right? And you see a young generation of beautiful, unaged people rising up in their prime as you then begin to age, and you see these things going by, and you see if what, what happens is either you see that this is the way creation is, and you are a creature in it, and you live in the rhythms of God, and you entrust to God everything that's ultimate, and you live yourself. You are an unultimate creature, and you live embracing the non-ultimate real things in front of you, realizing that even you will pass away, and the only thing that lasts forever is that that God does. And he either does something in you that makes you last forever, or he does something in your work, in other people that will last forever, and that's the only thing that it can last, and it's the only thing ultimately that can endure, and that's all. And that's fine. Right? The dishes you washed— weren't even supposed to stay clean. The clothes you washed were to be worn so you could wash them again, so they could be worn again. That's all—our whole life is like that. And if you embrace that everything ultimate finds itself in God, and you can't micromanage that. See, even Christians— Say, I believe, Nick, I believe that. I'm still angry. You're, no, you don't believe that because you don't really entrust those ultimate meanings to God and focus yourself about the proximate things right in front of you in the rhythms of your daily life and embrace them fully. You want to figure out all the theological things. You want to know all that stuff. You want to know if that person's going to be saved. You want to know if you're going to ultimately be this way or that way. You want, to, you, want, you want to have that stuff. You want to be able to survey it yourself, and you can't. And you're a Christian, and it's driving you crazy. It's because you are not the creator. You are a creature, and God has given you the rhythms of the things that are right in front of you. Cut the piece of asparagus and savor it in your mouth and thank God that it's there and you're alive and there's breath and there's sensation and there are people you might even love near you. That's what you're supposed to be doing that moment, and you're not supposed to be surveying eternity, and you can't. And you see, if you try, then there is this internal death spiral that is designed to be a burden crushing the worldly ambitions that you have as a creature that wishes it was a creator, that wants to have the benefits of being creator, knowing the ultimate lasting of all things and the ultimate meaning of all things, having all of that surveyed in front of you, but none of it is. And so therefore, it will produce the misery that Jesus predicts and that Solomon predicted because they saw that in how God had created the world. And what that means is, is that the beauty of it is that if you're, if you're willing, you can actually, by faith, not by a lot of work, you don't have to pay any money, but by an act of faith, by trusting God, you can receive the life he gave you. And it can change how you feel about almost everything. Right? You can receive back its wholesomeness, eating and drinking fine cheer, its nature, learning how to take satisfaction in toil, its meaning that God gives knowledge and wisdom, and much of it is just hidden in him. 
that you can receive back its rhythms, right? All of chapter 3, there is a time for everything. If you read Ecclesiastes, that seems like a throwaway chapter. Why is there like a—there's a, a time for everything song in the middle of this basically theological lecture? And the answer is, is because the rhythms are everything. That it's a time for this, and living within the rhythms of those things is everything. If you want to be young and single when you're a mom of a young kid, you're going to be unhappy. If you wish you were a mom of a young kid when your kids are teenagers, you're going to be unhappy, right? If you wish you could still play basketball when you have 60-year-old knees, you're probably going to be unhappy. Like, you, if, you, if, you can't, if you can't move in the rhythms of how things are changing and embrace the change with the thing that doesn't stay the same, in that perfect orbit of being as a creature, you can't be happy. You will hate life, and you will hate everything you toiled for. Every time. It is an unshakable— unescapable structure of human happiness. And the only way you can get around that without coming to God is to deceive yourself horrifically. And, but all of those deceptions will lead you more towards visual, visceral pleasures that will shrink your capacity for real deepening pleasure and lead to a different unhappiness, which we've talked about in other weeks. Which means that God uses the ordinary to frustrate worldliness, and then through embracing the ordinary and living in it to forge substance. Because essentially what we're doing is learning how to be creatures when we've been trying to be gods all this time. And learning to accept the God who is there, accept his redemption, accept his direction, accept his calling, right? And to do what he's actually put in front of us, which is to love him and to love others. Right? Now, in order—so here's the problem. We want to believe this, and we find that we can't. All right? So we've been—we've been stewing. We've been—we've been, like, vacuum-sealed marinating in worldliness for so long. And so you can hear what I just said, and you can read it in Ecclesiastes and see it there. You can see it in Matthew 11 or 6 or whatever, and you can say, that's right. And then you can say, but then, Nick, in like 20 minutes, I don't believe it anymore. I'm already angry again, right? And so, remember, we're creatures that become like what we imitate. Right? If you imitate worldliness, you're going to feel that way, and you're going to think that way. And so what, what you've got to do is you've got to get rid of some practices that make you imitate worldliness. We're going to talk about that mostly next week when we talk about escaping diversion. And then you've got to, like, take on some practices that lead to godliness. Now, some of those, like, that are called sometimes spiritual disciplines are meant to learn more about Jesus or whatever. And those are very important in growth of substance. We're going to talk about those in two weeks when we talk about embracing discipline. But there's a completely different set of practices that are just about learning to be the kind of person that embraces the ordinary. And I would argue, okay, so this is a little bit controversial, and I'm now within the realm of speculation, but I really believe this, personally. I actually believe that the disciplines of embracing the ordinary are every bit as critical to your godliness as the more structural, spiritual disciplines of reading the Bible and prayer and worship, even though you'll notice that some of those are ordinary rhythms, right? The rhythm of prayer, the rhythm of worship are themselves rhythms. Like, when do, like every week you don't look at your thing and be like, hey, I wonder when High Point is going to meet, right? We just, like, we meet every Sunday, right? It's a weekly, like, planned—it's a rhythm, you see? Why? Because you need to worship every week. Every single week, at least once. You need to come in here. We need to, like, re-remember what the heck's going on. Right? But there are some smaller practices of the ordinary that we have to embrace. 
okay? And so there's maybe 50 of these, and I'm just going to go over a few, and you may need to, to glob onto the ones that you need the most. Do you understand? So the first is to go through in your head over and over and over again and clarifying that ordinary isn't the same thing as typical. They're not the same thing. I've had people say, look, Nick, it's good that people are passionate about wanting to change the world. That's not a bad thing, right? Now, that's true and false. It is a bad thing because of the way we believe that. Most people want to change the world by doing unordinary tasks in like, in like flashes in the pan. That's why like all this like awareness stuff doesn't really change anything and you come back 10 years later and you're like, everything's the same as it was, maybe even worse. Right, because what actually has to happen is like ordinary things. So like tweeting about racism isn't going to change racism. People of different races going to church together for 20 years will change racism. You understand? People intermarrying with other races and raising families, that'll change racism. But like tweeting, tweet storming is not going to change racism. You understand? So th- th- there's, so yes, it's going to want to change the world, but what the world needs to be changed are these incredibly long-term ordinary practices, right? You want to change the world? Okay, like raise your kids non- to not be idiots. Okay, that'd be a really great way to do that, right? So that they're productive people instead of needy people, and they will be able to support other people in friendship, and in marriage, and in sustenance, and in lots of ways, and maybe invention, and wealth production, that help lots of people. That'd be great. And that's going to take you about 18 to 27 years, depending on which plan you're on. Right? What I, one of the things I say, in, I say in the book is this, is you can't have an army that has a thousand generals and one soldier. There are, there are certain bottlenecks of position, right? Like, not everybody can be a pop star, thank God, right? You can only have, like, you, you can't, you can only be a star if there's a lot of space around you that's not star, right? We wouldn't be like, oh, look at that star, if, like, the whole sky was nothing but one big bright light. Do you understand? So being, like, extraordinary, like, that's not really what we're after. What we're after is quality. You can be an extraordinary thing that everybody is called to. You can be an extraordinary truth teller. You can be an extraordinary listener. You can be an extraordinary, um, friend. You can be an extraordinary worker or productive person. You can be an extraordinary lots of things, and it's cooperative, not competitive. You see? Right? It's, like, there's a lot of ways where we can all be extraordinary, and if we all were that thing, everybody's life would get better. Our life is together would be incredible, right? But if we want to be the extraordinary one, we all got to fight with each other. Right? And, w- and what happens is all the meaningful, moral extraordinary goes away because we're so busy chasing being the star. So you get a bunch of idiots that are trying to climb over each other, poking each other's eyes down to push each other up. It's like people swimming and all trying not to drown. Second is to find rhythm and limits in your life. Listen, fear of missing out is going to kill the heck out of you. You're going to—like, it's going to kill you. You can't do most things. I mean, listen, first world problem. This is the problem with being wealthy, okay? This is the problem with being wealthy. You can do more stuff than you have time for. Like, you can have 50 million dollars, you don't have any more time, right? There's like some 85-year-old bazillionaire that was in the news because he said racist things. He owned the Clippers or something. I forget the guy's name, right? And they were like, these wealthy people, and somebody wrote this article that I thought was really fascinating. He said, that guy's really not that wealthy. And I was like, that guy's wealthy. He's got a ton—he's super wealthy. And then he said this, if you're 22, would you trade— the years between 22 and 84 for his money? And the answer for almost everybody is no. 
right? Which means if you're 22 and you would have said no to that, you think you're richer than that person. Here's why. Because time is incredibly valuable. Because it does not matter how many resources you have, how many servants you have, what you can't, you, there's, there's no way to get more time until the singularity or cloning brains or something, at least, right? There's just no way to get more time. You can get, you get more money, you're never going to get more time. And so therefore what happens is with wealthy people is you get more money and you wish you could cram more into the time. And you think if you spend enough money, you can cram more stuff into the time, but you really can't. And what you get is anxiety and you start to hate life. Right? And so our kids are so much more nurtured and they're on so many more anxiety medications. And if we think that's all because of undiagnosed problems in the last generation, I mean, I think that that's poppycock. I mean, that's an intuition. There's no way to prove that empirically. Nobody could ever prove that empirically. But kids are, are partly anxious because they're playing three sports and they're this nurturing thing. And they got, oh, this is. I mean, the reason why we ended up homeschooling our kids is because they went to school and then they came home and did school for three hours and I never spoke with my children. We didn't have any, we didn't have any family. There was no family in our family. Right? So we made a change because we needed to, like, somehow fit some family into our family. And it's very easy to like, be so focused on like getting all the more things in that the stuff you started out wanting to do, like loving someone. <laughs> like I married my wife because I wanted to love her. I didn't just want to like crank out life with her as fast as possible. Like I, I was planning on listening to her and like exchanging and like enjoying her company and like those sorts of things. And it is so fast that you can create a life in which you don't do any of those things. But you're doing a lot of things. And we need to realize that when the Bible talks about wealth as a good thing and as a curse, and the love of it being a root of all kinds of evils, that the Bible is the most realistic document ever in the history of the world about wealth. And we have to find it in the—because in the time of our lives, the rhythms and the limits— especially in our parenting, because it's probably the most time-idolatrous thing that we have right now. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but you need to recognize and eliminate what you might call vampiric practices. So vampiric practices is when you're trying to suck the life out of false lives. So sucking the life out of false lives would be like attending to social media. So the lives displayed and advertised on social media are all false lives. Okay, these are little specific moments picked out of lives, put up that look nice, and so they, they, they create this false impression. That's why it's apparently empirical among teenagers that teenagers who spend more time on Facebook have lower self-esteem, right? And they think that it's not—they have low self-esteem, so they get on Facebook. It's the other way around. It's causal, right? Well, that makes sense. If you spend your time creating these fake life vampires and you're trying to suck life out of these other false lives, whether it's the false lives of social media, whether it's the false lives of just shows on TV and films of people living completely fake human lives, no human life would ever really go like that, right? Or whether it's pornography or like ro the romance smut women read, right? Romance and sex are not like either of those things. And yet like you can try to suck a certain kind of fake life out of them. Gossip of any kind, whether it's reading a gossip magazine like people, or whether it's like gossiping to another person, what you're doing is you're sucking the life out of somebody else's life on the basis of false things that you both want to think about their life that are probably more true about you, right? Or like online arguing. Okay, like, 
it is, a, it is a major espionage fact, apparently, right? Both leaders in both parties, Bush did a, uh, George W. Bush did a policy speech this week that was fairly widely distributed, where he talked about that one of the main focuses of Russian espionage right now is to go into commenting chat room areas of widely used websites, even with bots, and to put the most horrific, hateful, dividing kinds of things in there to foment as much American division as possible. Like, it is, like there are dossiers in Russian intelligence specifically about that. And like, you have commented back to them. Like, if you have commented back on comments, on websites about people that are so hateful or saying things that are so stupid, like, it's almost certain you have replied to a Russian bot. And, and fallen exactly into the temptation that, that was intended. Do you understand? Just quit being a moral vampire or a life vampire. There's no life in any of that. No real life in any of it. Get rid—you just got to get rid of it. Just get rid of it. One of the things that we need to understand is to get—we need to understand that we have to be a people that honor producing and serving over consuming and receiving. Okay? In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul says, when he's leaving the Ephesian elders, one of the main points he makes is, he says, listen, I told you that we needed to work hard with our hands so that we would have something to share with others. Never did I take your money. Never did I let you support me. I worked with my own hands and my companions. They worked and made tents, and we always supported each other. Not because we didn't deserve to be paid, but because we wanted to show you that that is how a Christian lives. A Christian puts their hand to something. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Okay? If you, if you do a job that benefits another person, then that job is worth doing. And giving yourself to the productivity of that job, even if you don't like the atmosphere, you don't like the wage all that much— then, yeah, then work on your human capital. Learn some skills, learn some ability, demonstrate you're responsible, and move up. Right? In America, hardly anybody makes minimum wage for more than eight months if they stay continuously employed. Because if you do a good job, people are looking for good people. Right? And, and I remember working at a restaurant when I was in seminary, and I basically handed out greasy paper um, menus and seated people. And on Saturday nights, I would work at the door and tell people they're going to wait three hours, and then they would scream at me with all kinds of profanities, and I would say, sir, it sounds like you're upset. We would, I, would, I think you would love to get a Mai Tai right now, because you'll, it'll just like, you'll just feel so good, and that, that three hours will go faster than you've ever dreamed. With a smile on my face, learning how to do something worthwhile. Because listen, it's worthwhile just telling a guy who maybe saw his quarterly report this today and knows that his job's going to be on the line. He's taking his wife out to an expensive dinner, and you think that he's, like, riding higher than God driving his little Porsche, and yet he's so angry, and he yells at you, and maybe if he yells at you and you can give him a kind answer back, he won't yell at his wife later. And that's why God puts you there, and it's worth doing. It's worth doing. Unless you're all self-interested, and you get personally offended and angry about it, and like, this shouldn't happen to me, and I shouldn't have to deal with— yeah, and Jesus should, didn't have to deal with your sins. Right? It's like, it's like Jesus' answer that always wins. Yep, and I didn't have to die for you. But there is joy and there is glory in participating in the redemption of others and the life of others, and productivity is this beautiful thing, right? Like, in the—, in the um, Arthur Brooks did a, a very broad study on happiness and, you know, receiving stuff and ha even having enough 
doesn't even register in the four largest indicators of what will make a human being happy. But feeling like you do something productive that helps others is fundamental in the top four things. And so as a people, we should care about that. If you own a business, you should take a lot of pride and pleasure in making good jobs for people and giving them productive and useful things to do. And creating that kind of wealth and those things are really important. If you do a job, if it's a crappy job, as a Christian, you should, like, you should do the job incredibly well because productivity and serving others is fundamentally good. It's part of what you've ordinarily received for the day. It is supposed to be toil. All the jobs are toil. They're all toil. The pop stars have to practice like 10 hours a day. They have like bad knees and like, yeah, I mean, sure, they got plenty of money to spend, but like everybody work, it's, it's, it's ordinary for everybody. Everybody does the same thing every day. The president does the same thing every day. I don't know about this president, but most presidents do the same thing. You know, you wake up, you get a briefing, you drink a cup of coffee, you get a quick breakfast, you go out to another briefing, you do this, you're handed these papers, you talk to these people, you hold those babies, and it's the same every day. Yes, you're, you have a higher rank, but it's the same every single day. So yes, try to work into something that you find maybe more engaging of your abilities. Increase your capacity so you can do a job, not even really so you can make more money, but so that you can produce something for the good of others. And you see, it's only when we look at our work that way that we can really start to have the possibility of being free of the love of money anyway. And we can stop thinking mainly about how we're going to spend our money because the ordinary realities are going to take it all up anyway. Can you imagine if, like, I made my wage, and I thought while I was working, like right now I'm talking to you, and I'm like, man, I'm going to make some money this week, and I'm going to spend it on a new blah, 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 right? And what's, here's what's going to happen. What's going to happen is I'm going to get a paycheck. It's going to go into my bank account. My wife is going to spend all that money on our family. Like, we're going to buy food and clothes and, like, the kids are going to, like, one, one of the kids is going to be like, oh, so we cleared something. Like, well, no, this kid grew more this month, so I had to buy that one more clothes. And I'm like, oh, when am I going to get to buy another boat? You know, it's like, this is— But if I, if I actually spend my day thinking about what I'm doing and what I'm doing, how it contributes to the good of others, it's totally different, you see. Cultivating thankfulness and humility we talked about before in redemption in terms of our justification and God redeeming us in terms of our growing in faith and our practices of worship and prayer, but then also just in creation itself. Oftentimes we get so tied up in Jesus redeeming us, we forget that he's redeeming creation, which was the beginning fascination, which is that we need to cultivate an approach that is a fascination with the world rather than snobbery, and that's all about attitude, okay? Selfish people are snobs. They're flippant. They blow everything off. They, they think they see through everything, all, all that kind of stuff, okay? Those people are incredibly tedious to be around, and they're joyless, right? And our, and our culture is full of them because it's—because it's, it usually comes out of a defensive thing, or it comes because people start copying other people, and they do it before they know it, and they don't really know what's happening, right? But it's, it's, a, it's a joyless stupidity. But what God wants us to do is to recognize that almost everything can be an object of your fascination. Almost anything. And a growing person is a person whose fascinations actually aren't narrowing, but broadening. Who lives in a world where they wish they could, they had time to be fascinated with everything. And they just can't, they just, they wish that, I wish that I could do all your jobs. 
Like, I, like th that's what my heart should be like. My heart should be like, like, all of your jobs where you all do different stuff than me, I wish I could have a life where I did your job too. And I could explore all the things that are part of what you do. Right? And like, there's all these couples and all these families and people who married other people and they're having a family with that person and that family's totally different than your family and you're like, there's an infinite number of families that like I could have had in an infinite number of lives and they all would have been so different and they all would have been fascinating in completely different ways. But my family— but that should lead me back to that my family's incredibly fascinating. What's fascinating about my 14-year-old and my 12-year-old and my 10-year-old and my 4-year-old? What's fascinating about my wife in this stage of her life? What's fascinating about today? What's fascinating about the fact that we're together right now? What's— And that attitude, the attitude of being a nerd of all things rather than a snob against most, is fundamental to being happy in the world as an ordinary creature. Does that make sense? And when you begin to have that kind of fascination, you begin to experience what G.K. Chesterton said about his faith in, in the book of Orthodoxy. He said, a man is not really convinced of a theory when he finds something that proves it. He's only really convinced when he finds that everything proves it. And the more converging the reasons he finds pointing to this conviction, the more bewildered he is if asked suddenly to sum them up. You see, my, my, one of the things I tell people sometimes who are caught up in secularity and, it, and the narrowing of worldliness is, is that my, actually my experience is, is that when I try to live opened in fascination towards Jesus, and I begin to try to see what God is doing in all these things as best as I can, though I know the ultimate knowledge is reserved for him, it, what happens is what Solomon said, that God gives knowledge and wisdom. And that when that happens, I find everything fascinating, and I find everything converging. Now, is that confirmation bias? Or is that seeing God reflected in all things? I could never know. Not perfectly. But what I do—what I have found over the last 10 years is that though I used to be convinced about the glory of God by certain things— I found as I've gotten older and I've, I, as I've tried to be open in this way to God in all things, that I find almost everything, not everything, and I don't think it ever gets to everything, but I find a ton of things converging so that I could never really sum them up. But what I do know is this, is that it changes how I've felt about my life, and about whether I can eat and drink and take satisfaction in my toil, whether I can embrace what's really in front of me rather than what isn't, and whether or not I can live as a creature who isn't mad about the fact that I'm not the creator. And in that, I can not just enjoy the things in front of me, but the God who made me and redeemed me. God, um, <clears throat> would you please give the truths of this book in Ecclesiastes about ordinary and embracing the ordinary to your church by your spirit? Would you help us be, to be open in our hearts to you in that way? Would you help us to see things we haven't seen before? But would you help us to shed all of those feelings that Solomon listed? And I know that there's probably people in this room right now that would say, when he said, I hated life and I hated all the things I toiled for, they were grievous to me. I feel that way. I pray for the person that feels that way, that right now you would minister to them and you would give them faith and they would be able to put their trust in you and let that go. And they would receive that your gift of freedom from that. And help us to really believe that you have given us the ordinary 
to free us from worldliness and to grow substance in us. In Jesus' name, amen.